Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. My name is Brandon Stiver, and it is a pleasure to be with you. It is mid-September now, friends, which means summer is wrapping up. I know my kids are going back to school. If you are a parent, you might be experiencing the same. Uh, And with that, we are going to have our final compilation uh, episode today where we're going to be looking at foster care. We're going to be looking at parenting. We're going to talk with some parents. We're going to hear from some of these great guests that we've had that have really spoken into foster care here in the United States. So I'm excited to jump in. Just kind of wanted to share a couple announcements. It is September now. At the end of this month, we are going to be having the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit in Atlanta, Georgia. Just kind of wanted to throw it out there. If you are going to be uh, at KFO Summit this year, we would love to connect with you. Uh, would love to connect with you at the One Million Home Table. I'm also going to be doing a couple workshops. Uh, one is a Better Together Room. We're going to be talking about uh, radical collaboration for radical impact. What does it mean to uh, do collective impact? What does it mean to collaborate with other organizations? How can we do that well? How can we analyze collaboration? And uh, I'm also going to be doing a workshop as well with some friends from various organizations, including those that have been on this show before, including Brent Phillips, Ashley Heiligman, Spencer Reeves, and Marissa Stam. We're going to be talking about transitioning your organization learning from uh, the lessons, you know, that people that have gone ahead, what that looks like. So if you have interest in reintegrating kids, getting kids back into family, back into community, but you want to know how to do that and how to move your board or move the board of an organization that you uh, have a stake in um, or moving the donor base. Uh, that's going to be a conversation that we're going to be having as well. So would love to connect with you at Christian Alliance for Orphan Summit in Atlanta at the end of this month. I know that Phil is also going to be uh, there. So would love for you to connect with him. I believe he's doing the transition to family care simulation. So, uh, yeah, we're all about getting kids into family. We're all about ethical orphan care here at Think Orphan. So uh, Phil and I would love to connect with you in person in Atlanta. Now, enough of the promo, enough of the announcement. Uh, We do hope to see you in Atlanta, but we're going to jump into some content today. So uh, we are looking at a few different stories of people that have engaged in the foster care space. Uh, Some of these are interviews that we've had even earlier this year and then also bringing back an oldie but a goodie with a, with a good friend towards the end of our show today we're going to jump off into uh, a conversation that we were able to have earlier this year with tori hope peterson uh, if you guys have heard tori speak before she has a compelling story she is a passionate advocate and she's a care experienced individual herself she um spent some very formative years in the foster care system. Uh, She bore the brunt of some of the challenging components of growing up within that space. And she's also come out the better, uh, she's also come out of the other end of it uh, better, you know, than, than, than she, than, than one could have imagined. And in fact, now she's actually uh, serving uh, in that space as a parent. Um, So uh, Tori has a great story. So, uh, and I would just encourage you guys, you know, um, when she came on the show, she wasn't really promoting anything or anything like that. But next month, uh, Tori's book 
which is called Fostered, comes out. So about a month from the release of this podcast, uh, you can hear more from Tori. And uh, I would encourage you guys to go on Amazon and uh, pre-order that book, Fostered, by Tori Hope Peterson. But we're going to jump into some of this content right now. And without further ado, here is our interview with Tori Hope Peterson. I want to kind of circle back on your story because I, I think, you know, where God has taken you, Tori, is, is really remarkable. Um, you know, but, but somewhere in there is, is also that, that, that girl, right. Um, that was, that was in foster care. And, you know, on this podcast, we talk with people that work in foster care. They, um, work with churches that are engaged in foster care, you know, therapists, social workers, um, but when we are able to talk with someone like you that has lived experience, we're like, now we're talking to the real experts. So, you know, when it comes to, you know, foster care, could you maybe help us and just kind of give us an insider's view, you know, of what it was like for you growing up in foster care? You mentioned you had 12 different placements. Um, and I just imagine that there was a lot in there. Can can you just kind of help our help our listeners really understand, you know, what it's like for foster youth? When I think about how do you describe foster care, like as a whole, all those 12 phones, it really mirrors um, if anyone has been married. I think that's like a really good way of um, explaining it. So you marry, you, you know, you enter into this family, okay, and you have your in-laws and you want to be, and maybe, you know, you should probably, you might even experience this when you're just dating. You enter into this family and you want to be accepted and loved. And so you kind of mold yourself um, to be more like them and they mold themselves maybe to be more like you. That doesn't happen in foster, when you're a foster kid um, as much, but you're definitely mold. You, you have to mold um, to be like the family in small and big ways. And I just always felt like I was like, apologizing, you know, for being, just being and trying to be accepted. Um, not just being the person that, not just being like a charity case, like the, the person that people are serving and giving to, but can I like serve and give? I'm also an Enneagram too. And I think that's been in me since I was a kid. And, um, I think it's just this constant tension of then when you, you feel accepted and you feel like you're maybe understanding the lay of the land a little bit more, um, something happens where, you know, I either sabotage the home because that closeness is scary. Um, and I think they're going to leave anyway, or, you know, they, I was an older kid in the foster care system that second time around. And as we know, a lot of people start being foster parents because they are very interested in adopting younger kids. And so if a younger kid came along, you know, being moved to the next home um, and then, you know, being distraught by that, but then still entering the next home and being like, okay, well, I got to be on my A game because I got to be accepted and loved and, I got to figure this out here. Yeah. It, it's such, such a hard, you know, reality to feel. And then to, to be in that, in that time where you're still a child or you're still in your adolescence, you're still forming and to feel like your care setting is a place that you have to be performative. 
you know, that, and, and that is such a much more intimate thing than doing Mrs. Universe, right? I mean, when it's, I'm just, you know, getting up in the morning, right? And I'm having to perform, right? And well, I'm, you know, 14, 15, and that's not as appealing as a six-year-old or whatever. Um, that, that must be, yeah, I, I think that that's such a, such a difficult reality for, for people to understand. Yes. That word performative, I, yeah, I couldn't think of a better word than that describing, um, much of my experience. Um, and even at school, some of my, so there was, I'm, no one can see me right now, but I'm, if you're just listening to the podcast, I'm a mixed girl. I am black and white and I went to a school that was predominantly white and I became, um, which really it was never, it was, it wasn't a problem for me. I was raised by a white mom and, um, my foster parents were predominantly white. It was what I was used to. However, there was another young woman was a mixed girl. She was the only other mixed girl in our whole high school. And we just got, you know, you, when you are, when boys tell you like, oh yeah, I'd love to date you, but like, I don't know what my parents would say. No one can connect over that besides, you know, this other girl. And we got very close because of that. And, um, her, her parents said that they were always worried about her hanging out with me because I, she would, you know, we were young. So she would just tell me things. She didn't know that, like how it would affect me. I don't think she meant it illy but she would told tell me that her parents were very scared of her hanging out with me because I was in the foster care system and so because of that I would and we were just like hung out at school and so I would try really like I was a 4.0 student and I remember in the back of my head I remember thinking if I get to be valedictorian, I'm going to get on stage and I'm going to say like, see, I told you I was a good kid. Like I thought maybe my grades, if, mm-hmm. if I can't prove that because you don't see me when I'm at home, like maybe I can just show you through my grades. Like everything was me trying so hard to prove myself to my community and my parents so that I could just be a normal kid or be accepted. Yeah. And, and it makes me want to ask and, and for our listeners, they kind of know that this is where my mind basically goes all the time is looking at this systematically. Like, um, so you, you know, like you said, you were an excellent student, you were an athlete, you know, you, you did your best to, to please. Nobody's perfect, of course, but you did your best to please. You also dealt a really rotten, you know, hand of cards. Um, and yet you were plugged into this foster care system that you bounced around in. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't awesome. Um, so if you could kind of step back and reimagine or reinvent, you know, based off of your lived experience in foster care. So, so having intimate knowledge of the, of the system in Ohio, if you could, you know, reimagine or reinvent how foster care works in Ohio or just more broadly in the States, what would you do to change, you know, foster care? Yeah. So in 2014, that was the year I emancipated. So this did not benefit me in any way. Uh, But in 2014, the Normalcy Act passed. And that said that youth in out-of-home care can participate in the same extracurriculars, the same activities like going to friend's house um, as 
children, like biological children do, um, children who are not in out of home care. I think I would have benefited from that policy a lot because I felt very isolated in the foster care system. As I said, like I would ask to go to a friend's house and their parents were kind of like, they, they had to know I was in the system because I had to ask for background check, fingerprints, and proof of license and insurance if I ever wanted to go to a friend's house, which like that just sends a red flag to people. Like they're like, why does this girl have to do that? Like she's got to be trouble or, and, and a lot of people are just like sketched out by that. They're like, I don't want to go do fingerprints for this chick to come over to my house. And there's also not enough time. Like people invite me to their house for a week and background checks can take weeks. So I think um, the Normalcy Act passed. However, there are counties that still do not adhere by it because foster care is a county to county thing. Um, it can, you can, a federal law can pass, but a county can really throw it out the door. And so um, I would say that that is seriously like one of the most important things developmentally, socially for youth in foster care. And the second thing I would say is we need to do something different with the foster care file. I when So I started this thing called F the file and it stands for fight the file. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea is that, is that we wanna rewrite foster youth's files. Um, and this stemmed from mostly because I was deemed unadoptable, unwanted, you know, very early on. And when a child has that spoken over them from the very beginning, I don't, it's going to be impossible for them to form any relationships. Mm-hmm. When we have a first impression with someone and we know that it's a bad first impression, you know, that makes us, if we go to meet that person again, it does make us self-conscious and we're constantly trying to prove that that bad first impression like it was just a fluke or we're like oh my god there's not even a point to have a relationship with this person if we have a bad first impression in a job interview we don't get we don't get the job if we have a bad first impression on our first date we don't get a next date and so if you think about that in terms of the foster care system it's like these kids don't even have control of their first impression it's instantly bad because they are they have a file that talks about the worst things that have ever been done to them and the worst things that they've possibly ever done. And then they have to like constantly fight against that. And if you, I could literally go on forever. This will be the last thing I say in terms of this, because it is, it is my whole heart um, is that we are really, I think healing begins and ends with identity. When we know who we are and what we're capable of that they're, that God has a purpose and plan for our life, that's what allows us to overcome and be resilient. But when we have the opposite spoken over our identity in a concrete file that never goes away, I think that's just really, that's really weighty. And when we look at other parts of, there's only one part really of our system, of our culture that has that, and that's inmates. And 80% of inmates in America are involved, have been involved in the foster care system. And 76.6 get rearrested within five years of being released. And that's the one thing that they have in common is that they have a file that follows them around that speaks to the worst of the worst things that they've ever done or that have been done to them. And that is all. That's a crazy hard thing to escape. 
Well, that was our conversation with Tori Hope Peterson. So much in there. I would encourage you guys to go back and check out episode 196 to hear that in its entirety. And just in that, like, you know, 10, 12 minute segment, she was getting into the isolation. She was getting into the stigma, the push for kids to be performative. And then she was talking about, you know, the the realities around these case files and the documentation and, you know, the stigma that's even attached to that. There's just so much in there. And, and again, I would just encourage you guys, go back, listen to 198, or sorry, 196, uh, and, uh, you know, l- continue to learn from Tori and, and definitely pick up her book. You know, um, Tori has welcomed uh, a child into their family as well, similar as she was uh, adopted and welcomed into the 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 family of her coach. And um, we're going to hear from another individual that uh, I just absolutely love her perspective uh, and just appreciate what Jamie Finn brings to this conversation. She has been fostering for several years now. She is also just a passionate advocate. Um, she released the book Foster the Family. You can hear more about it on episode 192. Uh, but she got into quite a bit with us around, you know, just the system itself, what it means to wrap around families. And, and you know, if we hear from Tori about, you know, what it's like for that experience of the kid. Um, Jamie is one of those people that really clearly articulates the experience of a parent um, that's serving in that way. Um not only in regards to adoption, but but specifically into foster care. And uh, I just so appreciate Jamie's uh, outlook on this. So uh, let's jump into this segment from episode 192 with Jamie Finn. I, at one point, I was working in foster care in California, and I was working for a for a foster family agency. And uh, they they they. I, coming from a missionary background, this was a community-based organization, but they basically, you know, what, what was that when you, when you tell your dog to sick them, like they, they told me to sick them on the church engagement front, right? <laughs> ah, that's so good. So, uh, so I, uh, I was going around to all these different uh, churches and sometimes I would be able to preach. Sometimes I would just table, but it was all about this recruitment, right? Recruiting foster parents. And I did recruit some foster parents. It was a good thing. You know, these were people that God was calling into this space. Um, and at the same time, I probably had even more conversations with people that would come up and said, oh, well, I used to foster, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a lot more of those. And, mm-hmm. and, and I appreciate kind of the lens that you put on that. Like, hey, sometimes people are just called to do it for a year. But yeah. you're right. We also have most people. Well, I don't know. I don't have data on this, but I would say it seems like a lot of people are envisioning themselves doing it for longer, but they get that first placement and it's challenging. Yep. And we don't retain them. They burn out, you know, whatever you want to call that. So, you know, what did it look like for you and and your husband when you guys decided that you guys were going to enter this world of foster care? Like what compelled you? And then, you know, eight years in now, so you didn't, you didn't burn out, you know, with, with your first placement or in your first year or whatever. Um, what were those things specifically for you guys, um, that, that kind of kept you, so what compelled you in and what kept you there, uh, for, for several years now? Sure. I felt so compelled to spend up my life for what was going to matter. That, that was a drive that I've had 
for a long time. And I read the book Radical by David Platt and that messed me up. And I was like, okay, we there's something that we should be doing to be spending up our lives, using our yeah. home and family to serve others. And my husband was not feeling the same way. <laughs> he was <laughs> that happens not, sometimes. no, he was not excited at all, but he, while I tend to be a person of passion, he's a man of conviction. Mm. And so while he was not feeling it, I said, I'm feeling this and let's go to God's word and let's figure out what he's calling us to do. If it's not foster care, it's something. So yeah. let's figure out what it is. And so for him, it was really like a faith filled, sacrificial, like this is my sacrifice of praise yeah. to step into this. And I mean, he jokes like it still is. It's not like he's come to love it. And yeah. he has more reason now to hate it than he did before, <laughs> because before it was just like, oh, kids and families. And now we're so aware of the system and the workers and the judges and for him, it is it is such a sacrificial act of worship to God. And I think that both of those things are part of what have kept us. I mean, it is still hard and I still have to have an eternal perspective. I mean, that is the biggest thing that keeps me is just I have this one life to spend. I'm surrounded by these people who are worth it, families who are worth it. I have this one chance to do this work that's worth it. So I think that's like my super spiritual sort of thing. But that is huge for me. That foundational why is the biggest piece for me. I think the how, that's where organizations like Foster the Family, I, you know, just this support and community is a huge piece of it. I think understanding secondary trauma, uh, understanding true self-care. Uh, I write about it in the book. I, I didn't have an accurate perspective of self-care. You know, I think the world is like, go on trips and get pedicures. And then the church is like, life isn't about you burn up for others. And, and it's like these two dichotomies where it's like, okay, but what actually does God say? What actually can we get from, from scripture to provide wisdom for how we should be both taking care of ourselves and burning up our lives for others? And so I think really understanding what it looks like to take care of myself, to prioritize rest, to figure out how to love others well, but also like rest in God's love for me. And, and all of that has been a huge piece. And so I think it's both like the hyper spiritual why, and also really practical house, really practical. Like this is what it's going to look like for this to be sustainable for me. Um, and both of those things are equally important. Absolutely. No, I, I, I love that. And, um, I'm, I'm reminded, I, I know a mutual friend of ours is Jen Hook, where she talks about her, the, the replanted model where it's like, mm. you need all these different fronts, right? You need the, the water, the soil and mm. the sunlight, right? And it's, mm. you need the information. You also need the relationship, you know, you have to have like this kind of multifaceted, uh, uh, you know, go at how to maintain, right. And, and the spiritual side, as well as the physical and relational side, all of those things are important. So 
you know, and in, in your, in your time as a, as a foster and adoptive parent, I mean, eight years in, um, you know, what would you say are some of the main lessons, uh, for you and for your family? Like, like, yeah. What, what would be some of those things for maybe somebody that's starting off, you know, what have you learned, uh, this many years down the road? Sure. Well, I'll say that a lot of, it is a lot of learning because it's been a, a lot of really dramatic perspective shifts. You know, I got into foster care thinking there are these poor children who have been abused and neglected and they have these terrible parents and they're going to come to me and I can finally show them what love is. They can finally experience the love of a family. Well, <laughs> that came with this arrogance and saviorism and lack of understanding and compassion for these families who deeply love their children and are deeply touched by the pervasiveness of trauma and addiction and mental health. And it's been a very dramatic shift for me from let me rescue all the kids to what does it look like for me to step into the stories of broken families and love people well and see the whole family unit. And for me, it had to begin with a really theological perspective that God created the family and it is sacred to him. So if I start there rather than starting from, oh, these kids are hurt and I get to come save them, it changes everything. So now I'm stepping into something that God created that he loves and that's been broken by sin. Well, now it's just adopting God's perspective of bringing redemption and restoration and being a part of what Jesus came to do, which is heal what sin broke. So I am not going to be the one to save it, but God is about redeeming and restoring these relationships. I get to be sort of like the hands and feet here and play a part in redemption and restoration. So that has been a dramatic shift for me from you come into my life. I'm going to make you better. Hopefully you can stay forever to, oh no, I get to step in here and I get to, to be a part of what God is doing. Well, thank you, Jamie, for those wise words. You know, as I had mentioned going into that uh, little excerpt there, I just really value and appreciate Jamie's viewpoint when it comes to entering the foster care and entering the foster care system as a Christian, as somebody that is compelled by the gospel. I just feel like she puts a really important lens on it often. And I saw this often, uh, even working in foster care myself or even going into the adoption space as a parent, there is often this push towards well, I'm just going to provide permanency. I'm going into this space so that I can adopt a child. And uh, what she's really advocating for is is really twofold. One, that we would just enter this space more open-handed, you know, as somebody that is submitting to the Lordship of Christ, um, as somebody that, you know, wants the best for kids, go in open-handed. Maybe you are open to adoption, which is awesome because some kids need that. They need that permanency. But sometimes these kids are on a path to reunification and they need that. And that, that really is the second point. You know, uh, the foster care system, and she talks about this in that episode, the foster care system is built towards reunification. 
It's built towards reunification. And if we enter into that system with different expectations or a different paradigm, inevitably there is going to be a rub there. So if God is leading you into that space, go into it understanding how the system is meant to operate. Um, And if you are providing a safe and therapeutic family placement for months rather than the rest of their childhood and life, then praise God, you know, praise God that you've had that opportunity to do that and to actually work within the system itself. Um, you know, we talk about other things in that podcast as well around recruitment and retention. You got some of that in there. Um, we want to see families thriving and that includes those that have entered as foster parents. So hopefully we can go in with the right expectations, understanding the right paradigm and helping kids, whether that's for a temporary placement or when necessary for that kid to be adopted. So uh, speaking of paradigm shifts, uh, we are going to get into our last excerpt here, which is from none other than uh, the man, the myth, the legend, (laughs) Jason Johnson. Uh, Jason has uh, authored multiple books, including Reframing Foster care and everyone can do something uh he is really one of those people that is going to provide us with a right lens a right paradigm around kind of the broader system and and even what advocacy looks like within that space and just as a kind of a teaser uh, jason also has a hand in the story of the guests that we'll be having next week so like i said this is our last summer compilation series we're jumping back into our regular format of interviewing uh phil's coming back and and next week we're going to be talking with peter mudabazi uh also known on social media as the foster dad flipper he's also a, a one of the keynote speakers this year at the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit. And uh, we're going to be talking with him about foster care. But interestingly, Jason had uh, a role in kind of uh, even how Peter entered this space. So, but uh, we love Jason's stuff. Uh, he's such a, a good man of God and, and really helps us to kind of have uh, clear messaging in our advocacy and uh, really helps, you know, people like you and me uh, put the right lens on this and really enter this space uh, not only with eyes wide open but with hearts full too so uh, let's jump into this episode Uh, this is episode 118 where we were talking with Jason Johnson I think you're exactly right that a lot of people listening in I imagine have this like idea of having a massive burden taken off their shoulders if they could get this leadership yep. team uh, going and a healthy leadership team going. The, the thought of not having to do everything right. um, is so freeing yet mm-hmm. so uh, I think at the same time maybe discouraging for some because they say, you know what, I've tried. I've tried and I just can't get anyone on board. I just, you know, I, I've heard this, you've heard this. Um, you know, it's like banging my head against the wall. No one gets it. Everyone just says, you know, it's not my thing. Um, but I think you speak to that. I know you speak to that. I don't think you think you speak to it. You speak to it in the book about, you know, it's not, it's an intentionality, but it's, a, as you talked about clarity, um, to increase the clarity decreases anxiety. And I think so much, and I think this is so true, the curse of knowledge bites us so often. Can you speak to the uh, need for clarity, why clarity is so critical and what it does? and what the curse of knowledge is and why that's something that uh, people need to be aware of. Yeah, great. So 
in all things we want we want to increase clarity in this. So the illustration is this, it, and we talk about this in the book. It seems that no one gets lost anymore. So I do a lot of traveling. You do a lot of traveling um, for work. Um, but I, when I get off a plane, grab the rental car, I have no anxiety or concern about um, getting where I need to go. Um, because I have this little, this little voice in my phone that increases clarity. Uh, Siri, she tells me where to go, where to turn, what to do, what to watch out for. Uh, and so I have no anxiety. I know I'm going to get where I need, where I need to go because Siri has increased clarity. It decreases my anxiety, my, um, even sometimes apathy, um, um, or just this sense of being overwhelmed. And so in all things, in our messaging, um, no, personally, as a leader, what we want to do as an individual who might say, I just feel overwhelmed. There's just so much. There's so many tasks. The, the needs are endless. What we want to encourage individuals and, and, and leaders to do is increase clarity for themselves. You know, there's a million things that you can be doing. But just because um, you should doesn't mean you can. Um, or just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. Um uh, so what we want to do is increase clarity. What are the few things that I can focus on with intentionality and do really well um, and free me up from the burden to feel overwhelmed by all the other million things? And it can decrease my anxiety. It can decrease feelings of being overwhelmed. But also in our advocacy, um, oftentimes our advocacy to others is incredibly counterproductive, I find. Um, and I'll use um, an extreme example. Um, of that. Let's say our advocacy to our church or to our friends or to our community is, is this. Did you know that there's 153 or 141, whatever the number is, million orphans in the world? And there are over 400,000 kids in foster care. Over 100,000 of them are waiting to be adopted. Um, and the need is overwhelming. And it's really, really hard. And it's going to cost you a lot of money and take you a lot of time. Um, and you're going to end up in in so many support groups that you didn't even know exist, you know, because you're just going to be killing yourself. Um, you should do it. You know, <laughs> given all that, you should do it. It's 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 amazing. And people kind of go, wow, I mean, that sounds awful. Right. <laughs> um, and then we we want we walk away wondering why no one's responding um, or to our church leaders. Um, sometimes we we rush into their offices kind of emotionally hot because, man, we, we're emotional about this and we get it and we see it and we understand the need and we're just, we just don't understand why they don't. And so our encouragement is in, in our advocacy and in our approach to increase clarity. Um, and in doing so, we can decrease things like anxiety and, and, and apparent apathy. And one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite books, I encourage every church leader to read it. Uh, he says, what, what, Often, uh, what often appears to be apathy, um, I'm paraphrasing, what often appears to be apathy in others is really just a lack of clarity. Mm -hmm. It's not that they don't care. It's just that they don't have clarity on how to care. Um, and what we want to do is help increase clarity for them. And so perhaps an example of this could be Instead of our, our primary approach to our church being there's 400,000 kids in the foster care system, 
we want them to know the data. The data is important, but we need to contextualize it. We need to increase clarity for them. And what we can do is scale it down and say, there's 400,000 kids in foster care in the United States. But what we want to do is focus on what's going on within a 20 mile radius of our church campus. Um, and what are the needs right here in our own community? And how can we increase clarity on the practical needs right here in our own community and not be overwhelmed by the myriad of needs of the hundreds of thousands, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is be aware of the curse of knowledge, as you said. The curse of knowledge essentially says um, once you know something, it's nearly impossible to put yourself in the mindset of someone that doesn't know it. Uh, so um, I have four daughters and we are our youngest now is in the process of learning how to read. And I'm reminded of how much I am. I suffer from the curse of knowledge when I teach kids how to read. <laughs> I would be an awful kindergarten teacher. Uh, <laughs> Because as she very slowly stumbles and stutters through simple words, I just want to jump in real quick and say, you know, it's cat. It says cat. Let's move on, you know, yeah. uh, because in my mind, it's clear. I, I know that that's cat. And it's really difficult for me to put myself in the mindset of a five-year-old that doesn't understand that's the word cat. That's the curse of knowledge. We experience it in doctor's offices when they come in and they use this jargon we don't understand. And we say, just give it to me in layman's terms. Uh, just give it to me simple. So um, a really important research study was done years ago by a Ph.D. student. And to, to um, test the curse of knowledge, she put uh, on one side of a table, she put what she called tappers. And the tappers wore headphones and they listened to popular songs like the Star Spangled Banner and Happy Birthday. And their job was to tap on the table with the song that they were hearing so that their partner, the listener, could correctly identify the song. We've all played this game in some form or fashion with our kids or, or somebody. And, and they were told, how, how accurate do you think you'll be? How many, how many correct um, songs will your listener identify? And they guesstimated something like 50%. We think that 50% of the time our listener will, will hear the song correctly. And the end of the, the study showed that it was actually more like 2.5% of the time uh, that the listener actually correctly identified the song that was being tapped. Um, and um, what this proved was the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge is the listener or the tapper has the headphones on and they can hear the song clearly yep. and they're tapping on the table to someone that can't hear it. And they thought, Oh, easy. They should 50% of the time they'll hear it correctly. Turns out it was a, it was a failure 2.5% of the time. So the point being tappers, people who hear the song in their head think they are much better tappers than they actually are. What does that mean for us? It means that we hear for those of us that are listening to this, you're probably someone that the foster care, adoption, orphan care song is constantly playing in your head. You hear it loud and clear. You know all the language, you know all the terms, you know all the nuances. Um, and our assumption is if I can just get someone to sit across the table from me and I can tap this out for them, they will hear it as loudly and as clearly as I do. And the truth is, is that they, they don't. Um, and we 
walk away frustrated. Why don't they hear the song the way that I hear the song? Now, the listener walks away frustrated, too, because they're wondering, why does this person keep tapping on me like that? Right? <laughs> I don't understand what they're saying. And they're getting frustrated with me and I am getting frustrated with them. Right. Right. And so the solution to the curse of knowledge is the burden is on us as the tappers, the people who hear the song in our head. It, the burden is on us to find ways to help people learn the song word by word, line by line, so that eventually they can sing it for themselves. Um, the solution is not to tap harder and louder to sing harder and louder, to scream harder and louder. Um, it's to help them learn the song for themselves, word by word. Um, and that applies to the approach that we take with church leaders, the approach that we take with, with friends, family, advocacy in our community, and even ourselves, that we give ourselves some grace, that it takes time as a five-year-old to learn that that word is cat. Um, and it takes time for us to learn the song word by word, line by line for ourselves. Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, you know, he's one of those guys. We got to get him back on this show. But that was going back to episode 118 with Jason Johnson. Just love so much of what he packs in. And, and if you like that, you know, 10 minute spot, definitely go and check out the rest of episode 118. I just love his view on advocacy and how we use stats and what is actually going to compel people to step into this space, um, understanding the realities, but also going in with a sense of encouragement and a sense of calling because the church does have a critical role to play. Um, we are not enough in and of ourselves. Um, we, though ought to be entering into that space. Um, and I just appreciate how Jason views that and how he kind of shows us some winsome ways to go about uh, that. And uh, yeah, just great stuff there from Jason. Uh, this has been fun. Uh, next time, uh, like I said, we're going to be back to our regular interview format. This has been fun for me, though. I hope it's been fun for you guys as well. Uh, just uh, looking back over the last 200 episodes, uh, and seeing all the all that God's done, um, not through the show, you know, although we thank God for that too, but really through the people, you know, like Tori, like Jamie, like Jason, like others, past guests, uh, past ministries that have been shown, um, you know, really seeing what is it that God's doing when it comes to orphan, vulnerable children, foster kids, uh, children that have gone through adversity. Um, so thank you for taking this uh, summer journey with me over the last four episodes. We're excited to connect with you again in a couple of weeks where we'll be talking with Peter Mutabazi. And in all of this, we hope that you're taking everything that you hear on Think Orphan and using it so that you can love and serve orphans and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks so much. And me and Phil will be back with you in just a couple of weeks. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.